You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I'm going to start us off today with Mark's account of Jesus' experience in the wilderness. Um, The past two weeks, we looked at both Matthew and then at Luke. And while it is the briefest, Mark does give a detail not given in Matthew or Luke's account. So very simply, Mark 1, verses 12 and 13, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Mark is the only one to tell us that Jesus was with the wild animals. The impression we get is that Jesus, accompanied by the Holy Spirit, had somehow tamed these wild animals. He was coexisting with them in the wilderness. This brief picture provided by Mark, it it sort of, it suggests a dangerous situation a dangerous set of circumstances being overcome by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I bet all of you are familiar with the Bible Project. Well, the Bible Project commentary that I found says that this is Mark's way of telling us that Jesus is the new Adam. Um, The original Adam, as we know, lived harmoniously in a garden with all the beasts and wildlife of creation. And then when sin entered the picture, there came, there came between man and the rest of creation an animosity, an animosity so much that Adam's work was going to become toil. Um, and this animosity, it sort of culminated um, bet- when between the relationship between Adam and the serpent. And we're going to see more of that in a moment. So now we see that Jesus, the new and perfect Adam, has come into the world and in a desert, not the garden. He is subduing the wild creatures once more. Jesus is doing the work of restoring creation to its original order. He is unwinding what has been done through our sin. So while in Mark's brief account, he does not record any of the actual exchanges between Jesus and Satan, we know, thanks to Matthew and Luke, that one of Satan's tactics was misinterpreting Psalm 91 in his effort to... uh, suggest something to Jesus. And Fran did a great job last week of talking about how what a genius Satan is at suggestion. Um, so remember, Satan says to Jesus, as he is suggesting that he throw himself off the temple in verses 11 and 12 in Psalm 91, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's worth noting, I found found it very interesting, that the very next verse in this psalm, Psalm 91, verse 13, says this, You will tread 
on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Sound familiar? <coughs> it's, it's not only is it referring to Jesus coexisting in the wilderness with the wild animals. Remember, God tells Adam and Eve shortly before their expulsion from the garden that Eve's offspring will be bruised by the serpent and the serpent's head will be crushed by his heel. And here we have in Psalm 91, you will trample underfoot. And here in the wilderness, Jesus has assumed dominion over the wild beast. So let's consider what is going on between Jesus and Satan in the bigger picture of Jesus's work among us. Fran walked us through their exchange, their duel, so to speak. Satan played his deceitful cards, using the Holy Scripture to be his supposed to his supposed advantage, and still Jesus won the round. Because we know who dismissed whom. Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. And Satan was gone, at least for a while. Jesus had the last word in this exchange. So what is happening? Could it be that something new is happening? In Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 27, Soon after Jesus' time in the wilderness, Jesus is accused by the scribes, the lawyers of the day, that he is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, the chief warrior for Satan. The scribes cannot deny that demons are being cast out. It's happening right in front of them, right before their very eyes. So in their hard-heartedness, in their determination that Jesus cannot be who he says he is, they decide um, that, that it must be the result of some satanic power, that that's what Jesus is operating on. And we all know Jesus' rebuttal very well. You, lawyers, a divided house cannot stand. Why would Satan cast out his own evil spirits? Um, I scored on that point. Thank you, lawyers. And then Jesus goes on to say, well, that would have been enough. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And plunder means to rob, to desoil. Jesus is saying to the scribes and to the crowd, I have bound the strong man. I am in his house. I am plundering his goods. In my identity as the Son of Man, I am assuming my rightful authority and fulfilling my purpose of plundering the strong man's house before crushing him on the cross. The, the name Satan is translated diabolus, as in diabolical. The word means to lie and to slander. And this is exactly how Satan operates. In the garden, we hear him slandering God. 
did God really say that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And of course, we know that's not true. And in the wilderness with Jesus, he is still at it. Satan lies to you. I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. That's when he's trying to get Jesus to assume the kingdoms before him. That's a lie. Satan may ex exercise a temporary rule over our earthly kingdoms, but they were never delivered to him by their rightful ruler and creator. And it's not, and it's therefore not truly his to give. And let's not forget that Satan would never willingly hand over his authority. So he's lying. Tim Keller says, and I think this is really, it's simple, but it, it sticks with me. Keller says that Satan cannot make a good person bad. What he can do is make a flawed person worse. And what that means is Satan could not make the one and only good person a sinner, try though he did. But for us, us flawed and broken creatures, he can make us worse in our sin. This is Satan's warfare. He desires to make us more sinful and more separated from God. As Tim Keller also says, again, this sticks with me, Satan is the master of showing us the bait while hiding the hook. And think about that. Um, that's, that's exactly where he, he shines. So what are we to do? Satan is a real enemy prowling around looking for an opportune time to strike. What we, what we do, I suggest, is we follow the example Jesus set when Satan was after him in the wilderness. We put on the armor of God, which moves us right into um, Ephesians, this famous passage of St. Paul's, Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, his lies and his slanders. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And what is that armor? Well, St. Paul tells us. He lays it out in terms of a fully equipped soldier or warrior. It is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the word of God. Jesus had bound the strong man in the 40 days of testing in the wilderness, and Jesus crushed Satan's head on the cross. And he left us with the Holy Spirit and the whole armor of God. We are not defenseless. Through Christ and Christ alone, we have been given what we do not deserve, God's truth, Christ's righteousness, a gospel of peace, our faith, our salvation, and the word of God. We are, in Christ, equipped for the wilderness. And so now I am going to turn it over to Fran, who is going to give us a fuller picture of the Trinity and no telling what all you're going to do. <laughs> You'll notice Carolyn talks about Satan and I get to talk about the Trinity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's our personal, uh, she just, never mind. Uh, it's such an opportunity there and I won't take it. Um, thank you, Carolyn. So wonderful. And it's such a perfect lead in to our closing part of this class because the, per the one we have not really talked about at this point is the Holy Spirit. And she touched right on that. The sword, which is the word, which is the Holy Spirit. So just to remind you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make the point that the Holy Spirit was there. Matthew, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Luke, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in Mark, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. So who is the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to use the same three phrases that we have been using for these three weeks now. The identity, the authority, and the purpose. Now the best place to start, you may be surprised to find, are our creeds. Because even this morning, every day, we refer to our creeds. And that has been hammered out in the early church. A couple of things about the creeds. The Apostles' Creed was more of a baptismal statement of faith. The Nicene Creed was the legal statement of Christian doctrine. Nowhere in the Bible are the creeds stated. Just like you'll find nowhere in the Bible is the Trinity explicitly referred to. However, they are the key to understanding the whole of Scripture. Just as we understand the Old Testament better by looking at it Christologically, when we use the creeds as our statement of faith, we can understand the ark. And, uh, just hang with me. I think it will make more sense as we go. The, um, as I said, the crucial doctrine of the Trinity is nowhere explicitly stated in the Bible, but the doctrine is abundantly evident. Listen to the passage from John. When Jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased so right there you've got jesus god's father and the holy spirit the uh the trinity is our understanding of three in one and one in three, which by the way is an extraordinary doctrine to come out of a religion that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Nevertheless, we have the Trinity. And the third article in the creeds refers to the Holy Spirit, who is equal in nature, 
power and authority. We're talking about the identity and authority of the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The references in Scripture may be more scattered, talking about the Holy Spirit, than God the Father and God the Son, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Um, I couldn't help but smile. I saw Daryl Bray walk into church this morning, and he was my professor at Beeson. And there's a wonderful textbook he wrote called The Creeds, the Councils, in the Early Church. And I pulled it back out yesterday and was hearing his voice again as he was teaching some of this. There's a handout right next to Carolyn that gives you the Bible passages for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that I got from that class. And you are welcome to take one. And anybody listening online can email Carolyn and she'll... It's right here. I dropped it on the floor. Um, so there you go. All right, the third article. And I believe in God the Holy Spirit. Do I need to go over the creeds? You've got this, all of you. Okay. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. So, Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. John 14:26. but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I find that incredibly important to me as I get older and I don't remember things as well. 2 Timothy 1.4, by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Titus 3, 4 through 7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'm going to, I've got my eye on the time, so I'm going to skip over some of these other passages, but you have them there in the handout. The main thing I want you to hear today, and you'll hear me say it again, is that our faith is established on the Word of God, which is set out as doctrine in our creeds. Doctrine is crucial. These stories of Jesus in the wilderness, everything Carolyn has said comes from the Word of God. But doctrine alone doesn't really do much for us, does it? Doctrine alone does not. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Off script here, but Carolyn referred to dry bones. It was the breath of life that brought those dry bones to life. That is part of the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, even in the creeds, I just ended, he spoke by the prophets. The next sentence is, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The Holy Spirit is the bridge from God the Father, God the Son, 
into the living church. Dr. Bray in his class, one of the things he taught was you can imagine the Holy Spirit being viewed as the love that is between the Father and the Son. It is that relationship that is the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit is what takes our doctrine to fuel our doxology. And that is not a phrase that's original with me. I don't know who first said that. Do you? Yeah. It might have been. I, I, I don't know. But doctrine fuels doxology. What that means for us is, yes, doctrine is crucial. We have to know what we believe, why we believe it. That is the teaching of the Word. That is what we get here so often. That is what we get here through each other, through our personal Bible studies, all of that. But it is meant to fuel our doxology. And the Holy Spirit is what takes the doctrine into our hearts and lives and transforms us. Oh, golly. I still have many things to say to you. This is in John. But you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I have said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is the bridge between the risen and ascended Lord and Jesus in the church. So what does this mean? In Romans, For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done with the law, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us, fulfilled in us, who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God is the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is life. I, um, when my sister came back from her trip to Europe, and my, my older sister and my parents were saying, how was that, and did you make it to the Louvre when you were in Paris? And she said, well, I, I didn't have a lot of time, so I just ran through the Louvre. It's a little bit what I feel like I'm doing right now, just running through the Louvre. Um, the Holy Spirit provides the means, indeed is the means by which we are transformed and guided, comforted, and led. You've heard about this a lot. Gentlemen Lowly, Dane Ortlands, there is a chapter in here on the Holy Spirit that will take this understanding of the Holy Spirit to an I imagine, to a new and deeper level for whoever reads it. And I would love to read it out loud to you, the whole chapter, but I know we don't have time. It is the Holy Spirit that causes us to feel Christ's love for us. It is the heart of God coming to our own heart of darkness. And that is what I was calling this little teaching, the heart of God 
into the heart of darkness. My darkness, the darkness of the wilderness. And you're lucky because I took a whole rabbit trail down Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness book. And you're not going to get that this morning either. Um, the heart of God coming into our own heart of darkness, bringing life and light. To bring us into experiential knowing. The way you know that the sun is warm when you stand with your face raised to the sky on a cloudless day like yesterday. So the Holy Spirit, or the time is coming when true worshipers will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit is what enables us to experience the love of God. But if it is separated from doctrine, then it becomes what theologians have called a cut flower faith. And that image to me is a powerful image. If we separate from doctrine, then we have a cut flower faith, which may be beautiful, it may be a lovely experience, but it is going to die. So do you see how crucial doctrine and doc is what fuels doxology? So in the wilderness times, we see the Holy Spirit is there. In fact, the Holy Spirit preceded, led Jesus into the wilderness. So, love that as well. Um, do I have time to read any? No. Well, why don't we see if we have any questions? Okay, let me just we didn't really get, get questions last time. Please get this chapter. Chapter on the Holy Spirit. Um, he gives you a list of what Holy Spirit, the real purpose is, which is wonderful. The Holy Spirit causes us to actually feel Christ's love for us. The Holy Spirit takes the recipe and turns it to taste. I love that one. And then I will, um, I will close with this. It is one thing as a child to be told your father loves you. You believe him. You take him at his word. But it is another thing unutterably more real to be swept up in his embrace to feel the warmth to hear his beating heart within his chest and to instantly know the protective grip of his arms it's one thing to hear he loves you it's another thing to feel his love this is the glorious work of the spirit and for that we say thanks be to god okay all right. So, um, thank you all. New reflections on the wilderness and we, thoughts, questions. We did race through. There is so much, Carolyn. And I thought, how are we going to fill three weeks on this? <laughs> you know what that's like. Thank you. Oh yeah, you're welcome. It's rich and deep. And please take those handouts and look through. When I have just um, another comment, when you feel your doxology is waning, when you feel your, the praise is not welling up, when you feel you're flat, perhaps you go back to doctrine, which means go back to the Word of God. Go back to who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Go back to these words and let them come alive with you again. And you pray, Holy Spirit, let this fill me with your light in your life. All right. Anything else? Well, may I close this with a prayer? Holy Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we thank you that all 
The three and one and one and three are have come close to us now. Please lead us to deeper experience, deeper understanding, deeper convictions, and deeper praise, O Lord, as we give our lives to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.